Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. We are kicking off today a series of Christmas sermons, and so I am excited to bring this message to you. Several years ago, I wanted to give a special gift to my dad, so I decided to write him a letter. It went something like this. Dear Dad, for Christmas, I decided to buy you $50 worth of lottery tickets. I went ahead and scratched them off for you. Congratulations, you won $2. Here are those $2, Merry Christmas. This year, I don't want you to miss out on the joy of Christmas. We sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. This morning, I want to help you prepare room in your heart, in your life, in your family to welcome the Lord Jesus. I want you to appreciate the blessing of Christmas. And that's only possible when you realize, (laughs) wow, when you realize Christmas is connected to the cross. The blessing of Christmas is connected to the cross. Otherwise, it's just tradition. We are going to look at a passage from one of my favorite books in the Bible. I have 66 favorites. We're going to look at a passage from the book of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. We're going to look in chapter one. Luke was a doctor and about 2000 years ago, he decided to do a deep dive researching and recording the events of the life of Jesus. But Luke doesn't start his narrative with the birth of Jesus. He starts with the birth of John the Baptist, Jesus' relative. And so his parents were named Zacharias and Elizabeth. And Zacharias was a priest and he was serving there in the temple in Jerusalem when suddenly an angel appeared to him, announcing, your prayers for a child have been answered. You are going to have a son. You should name him John, which means God is gracious. God is generous. And this boy will be a prophet He will be a herald, a forerunner, preparing the way of the Lord. And this news came as fantastic news to Zacharias. But it's really funny, it's interesting that Zacharias had been praying for a child. When God finally answers his prayer, he doesn't believe it. How often are we like that? We pray and pray, and then God shows up. And we're surprised. (laughs) 
As a result of Zechariah's doubt, the angel Gabriel tells him, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words. And so, Zechariah, he was unable to speak. He was in solitude for nine months. And he had time to ponder, to meditate on all the Old Testament prophecies. And he realized his son would be the fulfillment of some of those prophecies. Because the Old Testament talks about one who is coming to prepare the way of the Lord. He's thinking, that's going to be my son. He's going to play a role in this. But he also meditated on all the prophecies concerning the coming king, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. So, if you would, please look at Luke chapter 1. It's a long chapter, 80 verses. We're going to look at the first words that Zechariah speaks as soon as his punishment for disbelief is over. Okay? So beginning in verse 67, remember, he's been mute and deaf for nine months, the entire pregnancy. And this whole time he's been pondering the Old Testament he wouldn't have called it the Old Testament, would he? He would have just called it his Bible. Because the New Testament is, hasn't been written yet. But he starts to put all the pieces together. Listen to what it says, beginning in verse 67, Luke 1, 67. And his father, John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He hasn't spoken for nine months. These are the first words out of his mouth. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Who spoke? It says he spoke, God spoke, by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Zacharias recognizes the voice of God in the words of the holy prophet. Salvation from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. When God makes a promise, he fulfills it. You can bank on it to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, addressing John the Baptist, the baby, will be called prophet of the Most High. You see, Zechariah recognizes that the Lord Jesus, who is going to be born, is the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us 
What beautiful poetic language. To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, if you look closely at this passage, some of your versions of the Bible may have certain portions of this text in small caps. The text looks different. The font is different. Do you see that in some of your printouts? Why is that? Because that indicates that it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Do you see? And in this beautiful prophecy, this song, there are more than 16 quotations and allusions from the Old Testament. And notice that Zechariah points out so many things that God does. I'm just going to, God is the actor, okay? God is the main actor in this. Let me just read some of the things from this passage. God visits. He redeems. He saves. He speaks. He delivers. He promises. He rescues. He provides. He prepares. He forgives. He shows tender mercy. He shines and he guides. I get all of that from this passage right here. Now contrast that to how so many people conceive of God. They think that God abandons, that he forgets, that he ignores, that he lies or deceives, that he withholds, that he's harsh, that he condemns. No. If that's your image of God, it will suck the joy out of Christmas. But if you recognize, like Luke and Zacharias, all the things that God does, it will change your perspective on Christmas. But a lot of people don't think they need God. They don't think they need someone to redeem them, to save them, to deliver them, to forgive them. There is a real danger for people who live in denial about their sin. They're self-content. They think they have everything they need. They're content with their spiritual condition, satisfied with the status quo. They don't want to change. They prefer life hacks to life transformation and real holiness. If you are in denial about the seriousness of your sin, if you rather be self-sufficient and you don't see your need for salvation, you will miss out on the blessings of Christmas. When my daughter, who's now 17, when she was three years old, I remember her saying, I don't need God, I don't need you, I can do it myself. You can just picture a little three-year-old saying that. But how many adults have that attitude? I don't need God, I can do it myself. You see, the message of Christmas is that we need salvation. But if I need saving, that means I need saving from something. I need saving from sin. And a lot of people don't want to admit that. 
if you confess that Jesus is Lord, that includes admitting, I'm not Lord. I'm not the Lord. And that's a difficult step for many people to take because we are fanatical about demanding our rights, our freedom, our autonomy. But Jesus said, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So coming to Jesus involves admitting that your righteous appearance is a facade, it's a front. You're posing. It's much better to admit, I need salvation. I'm broken, I'm limited, I'm needy, I'm sinful. And for people who are willing to admit that, Christmas comes as good news because Christmas is connected to the cross. Let's do a thought experiment, okay? Let's do a little thought experiment. Imagine that you meet Mr. Beast. Now, some of you know exactly who I'm talking about because he is the most, one of the most or the most popular YouTuber on YouTube, okay? He's got a channel with millions of subscribers. But there's some of you, you don't have a clue who I'm talking about. So let me tell you. Mr. Beast is a, um, he's got a popular show in which he, he loves giving away money. But he makes people go through these crazy contests to see who could win. So uh, puts a bunch of people in a swimming pool. The last person to get out wins $100,000. Or he gets a bunch of people and they all have to touch a jet airplane. The last person to take their hand off the private jet wins the jet. Okay, these crazy things. Sometimes he gives away cars or houses or all kinds of stuff. Okay, now imagine Mr. Beast comes to you and says, hey, I want to do something nice for you. I want to cancel out all your debt, all your medical bills, all your credit card debt. Poof, I want to make it disappear. Well, maybe you have asked Dave Ramsey into your heart and you have cut up all of your credit cards and with gazelle intensity, you have got out of debt and you have a healthy emergency fund and you're saving for the future. In that case, you hear Mr. Beast's offer and you're like, yeah, okay, I don't really need that. I don't need that. Uh, thanks though, I'll, I'll take that private jet if you're still offering. On the other hand, Let's say that you are drowning in debt. Maybe you've been reckless with money, or maybe you have a lot of medical bills, you've had some health problems, and the compound interest is just piling up. Some of you don't have to imagine that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. In that situation, if Mr. Beast comes to you and offers to cancel your debt, your medical bills, you have a totally different reaction. You'll be crying and screaming and dancing around and thanking him. 
because you realize how much you need it. The magnitude of your gratitude is in proportion to, your, to the gift and your recognition of your need of the gift. Okay, now hang with me a little bit. I want to extend this metaphor a little bit, all right? Imagine you have millions of dollars of debt, but you don't know it, okay? Collection agencies are after you. The IRS is after you. The mafia is after you. But you're in denial. I don't have any debt. I'm doing just fine. I'm doing just fine. I'm in the clear. You don't realize you're drowning in debt or you deny that you're drowning in debt and you're about to be pulverized. Mr. B shows up, offers to pay your debt, and you're just dismissive. You tell Mr. Beast, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. That's the condition of way too many of us. God comes with the offer of salvation. We have a real and serious problem of sin that separates us from God, and we don't see our need for Christ. You get it? You miss out on the joy of Christmas because you don't realize the magnitude of what the cross means. Christmas might be a fun tradition for you, but it's only when you connect Christmas with your salvation that you experience true joy. Let's go back and think more about Zacharias, okay? He's serving in the temple, he's a priest, when the angel Gabriel comes to visit him. Scholars think that around that time there were about 20,000 eligible priests. And so it's way more than they need to function in the temple. So most priests would only serve in the temple, if at all, maybe once or twice in their lifetime. But as a priest, Zacharias would have been well acquainted with the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, a lot of us, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, you start in Genesis, you find that interesting. Exodus is interesting. You make it to Leviticus and you start to peter out a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? I know I'm not alone. But God gave detailed instructions about how sinful people can have access to his holy presence. And it's through the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system highlights the awesome holiness of God and our sinfulness. But the sacrificial system me meant for them that access to God was restricted, ritualistic, rare, risky, and repetitive. Let's take those one by one. It was restricted. You, not anybody could go in and be a priest. Nobody, not anybody could enter the presence of God in the temple. You had to be a man. So that's half the population out. You had to be from the people of Israel. That narrows it down quite a bit. You had to be from the tribe of Levi, Further narrowing it down, you had to be between 30 and 50 years old, so you had to be the right age group, and chosen by lot. Access to God was highly restricted. 
Access to God was highly ritualistic. The priest had to perform special washings, wear special clothes and turban, and go through special ceremonies. Access to God was not only restricted and ritualistic, it was rare. Ordinary priests could perform the daily rituals, but only the high priest could enter the most holy place in the temple and only once a year. Access to God was very rare. Access to God was also risky. The priest could not enter the holy place without blood sacrifice. If he did not bring the proper sacrifice, he forfeited his life. Access to God was restricted, ritualistic, rare, risky, and repetitive. One animal sacrifice didn't do it. They had to perform it over and over and over, illustrating that animal sacrifices were inadequate. They were of a temporary nature. So Zacharias was well acquainted, well aware of his limited access to God. That's why he was so excited when the angel Gabriel appeared to him. He realized God is about to change this. He's about to introduce the Messiah. Do you realize that for 400 years, there had been no prophet given to the people of Israel? The last prophets, Zechariah and Malachi, then there was a period of 400 years where no new revelation came from God. Suddenly the angel appears and, and uh, tells Zechariah and he realizes God is opening a new way of access to him. When John the Baptist, son of Zechariah, grew up, He declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The ultimate sacrifice, not bulls or lambs or goats. No, his own precious blood, his own precious blood. And that opens the way of access for all of us. You no longer have to be a Jew. Gentiles are now welcome for the first time. It is no, you no longer have to go through all of this ritual and rigmarole to have access to God. It's no longer rare. You can have access to God as much as you want. It's no longer risky. Jesus has suffered in our place. The just for the unjust. Why? To bring us to God. What a change. What a magnificent change. I used to live in Calcutta, India, and I would do a weekly Bible study at a church downtown, and we would have many curious seekers come from a Hindu background, Muslim background, atheist background. And at that time, I was teaching through the book of Hebrews, which talks a lot about the Old Testament sacrificial system. There was a a curious Hindu young man at this Bible study And as you know, many Hindus are vegetarians. And so he asked, he made this comment, you Christians are always talking about blood. You're always talking about blood and sacrifice. Why do you have such a violent religion? I had been studying Anselm, who was a Christian theologian who lived about 1,000 years ago. 
And I could think of no better answer than the one Anselm gave when he was asked a very similar question. Anselm said, have you not yet considered the awful weight of your sin? Because when you realize your sin, you realize this is not something that you can just casually brush aside. It is an offense against God. But Jesus washed it away and it cost his blood. The entire Old Testament is preparation, pointing to the coming of the Lord Jesus. There's a, a hinge in history that happens at Christmas, the very first Christmas. When Jesus was born, there's a shift from anticipation to realization, from shadow to substance, from promise to fulfillment. Where all of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were only a picture, the sacrifice of Jesus is the reality. You must connect Christmas to the cross because through the cross, what happened? Jesus gives us access to God the Father. Through his birth, death, and resurrection. At Christmas, we celebrate his birth, but at Easter, we remember the death and resurrection. So many Old Testament prophecies refer to Jesus. Some people are impressed by the so-called prophecies of people like Nostradamus and Rasputin. Maybe you've heard of these predictions that they made and, and they're really impressed. Those guys are lightweight compared to the Old Testament prophecies. The Old Testament is filled with specific, detailed prophecies, such as Micah 5.2, which tells exactly which town Jesus will be born in and names it Bethlehem. At the time of its writing, the Bible was 25% prophetic in nature. Now, we've seen many of those fulfilled, and we can see how God literally actually fulfills his promises. And what does that do for us? That gives us great confidence. We know that God will make good on his promises. There are some things that he has yet to fulfill, but we know he will. Someone might object, but many of the Old Testament prophecies are, are cloudy. They're a bit hazy. Why doesn't God make it more explicit? Why doesn't God reveal himself more clearly? Remember, God has given us evidence sufficiently clear to convince those with an open heart, but sufficiently vague so as not to compel those whose hearts are closed. You see, God is not coercing you or overwhelming you with force he doesn't want you to believe out of fear. He wants you to believe out of love, out of faith. Let me ask you a question. Who was the greatest Old Testament prophet? You might think Abraham. No. As great as he was, no. Moses? No. Elijah? No. Jesus identified 
John the Baptist as the greatest Old Testament prophet. Jesus said in Luke 7, 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Isn't that interesting? But the verse continues. Jesus said, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That's mind-blowing. If you are in the kingdom of God, you're greater than John the Baptist, than Elijah, than Moses, than Abraham. Why? How is that? Because you know the gospel in a vivid and clear way, whereas the Old Testament prophets, as they were looking forward, they got glimpses. They got glimpses. But they were trying to figure out, as 1 Peter says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they had an idea, but now we have the full revelation. We have access to God in a way that they only dreamed about. We know the gospel, and so we're no longer looking forward or waiting for that fulfillment. We get to experience it. We know that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and Satan. And now we look forward to his second return where he comprehensively destroys sin, death, and Satan. At his first advent, his first coming, he came as the lamb to do away with sin, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At the second time, he will come as the conquering king where he will make everything right, where he will wipe away every tear, where there will be no more pain, suffering, or sickness. So this Christmas, I encourage you Just follow the ABCs of Christmas. A, admit that you're a sinner. For many people, that's the hardest one. To see that you can't do it on your own. That your good works will never be enough. In God's eyes, all of our righteous deeds are filthy rags. Admit that you're a sinner. And then B, believe that Jesus is your savior. Only he can take away your sin. And then C, celebrate your salvation. That's the joy of Christmas. Receiving the gift of salvation that God offers to you. We have an internal problem. That problem is sin. Nothing external can solve it. But you, when you believe in Jesus as Savior, you can celebrate. As David says in Psalm 32, 1, how blessed, how happy, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Christmas culminates in the cross. Christmas is not, about, not as much about presence as it is the presence of God.
I want to close with a poem that I came across, a Christmas poem, written by a man named Glenn Scrivener. I think you'll enjoy it. They say there's a big man who lives far away, supposedly jolly, but it's hard to say. I've never seen him and neither have you, but the children believe whether or not it's true. He's known as a loner with many a quirk. No time for a chat, he's embroiled in work. He keeps to himself for most of the year. I reckon we're grateful he doesn't appear. We send him requests for particular needs, but we never hear back who knows if he heeds. We try to be good, give his arm a twist to merit our place on his blessed little list. And maybe one day, if we do what we should, he'll give us our things so long as we're good. I've had it to hear. I'm calling his bluff. He's a weird, moralistic dispenser of stuff. Granted, this rant is a strange one to pick, but listen, I'm not really after St. Nick. As strange as he is, and Santa is odd, I'm really addressing most people's view of God. It's God who we see as a distant big guy, an ancient invisible Saint Nick in the sky. He sees you asleep, he knows when you wake, he's watching and waiting to spot your mistake. And just like Santa requests we hand in, we want all his things, but we don't want him. That's our connection with old Father Christmas. We might dress it up. It's essentially business. Throughout the year, good behavior's our onus. When Christmas rolls round, we're expecting our bonus. Just leave us the gifts, Nick. We've been good enough. Then please push on now that we've got all your stuff. I mean, Santa is interesting, curious, quirky, but no one wants him to share their turkey. I'm sure his ho-ho-hos are sublime, but I fear what he'll say once he's drunk our mulled wine. That's old Saint Nick. But the picture rings true. It's how we imagine what God is like too. But Christmas responds with a stunning, not so! The one from on high was born down below. To a world indeed, a world in need, he did not send another. God the Son became God our brother. He drew alongside forever to dwell, our God in the flesh, Emmanuel. This God in the manger uproots all our notions, a heavenly stooping, divine demotion. Born in a stable, wriggling on straw, fully committed to life in the raw. Santa gives things, and then goes away. Jesus shows up to befriend and to stay. Santa rewards those with good behavior. Jesus comes near to the broken as Savior. If you don't like God, I think I know why. You probably think he's Saint Nick in the sky. You're right to reject that faraway stranger. This Christmas, look down to the God in the manger. I want you to experience the joy of Christmas by connecting Christmas with the cross. Admit your need, believe that Jesus is the solution, and then celebrate.